and those just do not happen without your continually uh, honoring the Lord with your generosity. And so I want to say thank you and encourage you to uh, be faithful in that. So this morning, we get the privilege to continue uh, in our Bibles in uh, the book of Psalms. So I invite you to grab your Bible, please, and go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And this is a, a wonderful psalm, but I must confess to you that there, there's a bit of a weight that comes with this psalm because in order to experience the joy that comes from this psalm, We've got to go to a bit of a heavy place and a weighty place. And so I, I want to encourage you and just invite you for the next few minutes with me, if you will, to uh, just kind of give your mind the peace to kind of set everything else to the side. Uh, because one of the things we've seen even in doing ministry and even building up to this morning is passages like this seem to come loaded with opportunities of distraction along the way. And this, this is one of those that, as believers, or as someone that's going, hey, I want to understand what it means to follow Christ a little bit, uh, this is one of those we just want to give our undivided attention to this morning. So let, allow me to give you a recap a little bit to set up Psalm 51, and then we will read our passage together. This is a psalm written by David, and it, it's a psalm that is the follow-up to 2 Samuel 11 chapters 11 and 12. Make a note of, so you can go back and read those later if you're not familiar with those. Uh, but let me set this scenario for you. This is later in King David's life, and he was, uh, there was this time in the spring he was, where many of the kings were off at war. David was not in this particular season, and in fact, he was at home, and the, uh, 2 Samuel tells us that he was reclining on his couch in the afternoon and walking along his palace walls. And the palace walls there in Jerusalem were typically higher than all of the courtyards and things around it, so it gave kind of a surrounding view, and it allowed for a view into neighboring courtyards. And those that know the story know that uh, David went forward here and, and committed a, a grave sin. And as he was walking around, and we don't know, uh, I'm going to give a, a little bit of space here for this, we don't know if he was bored, he had a lot on his mind and was just pacing, or we're not told either, but listen to what occurs. He looks over as he's walking around into a nearby courtyard and notices a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing. He proceeds to find out who she is and then sends a messenger to have her come to him. She accepts and they commit adultery. Several days later, she discovers that she's pregnant and sends word back to King David. Bathsheba, though, by the way, is married to a man named Uriah. And Uriah is one of David's best soldiers. He's said to be a godly man. Even his name is to said to be a, a man of light or of God's light. And instead of facing his sin of adultery, David chooses a couple paths to try and cover his tracks. He has he does two things real quick. He's, he has Uriah sent home, hoping he will be intimate with his wife, and therefore the pregnancy could be seen as between them. But Uriah is a man of great honor and refused to enjoy the comforts of relaxation or being home with his wife because his soldiers were still in the heat of battle and he felt that he would be dishonoring to the Lord. And so he stayed separated from even connecting with his family and he slept outside his own gates. 
David then, though, goes on to a shocking level by having Uriah move to the front line of battle. And then commanding that in the heat of the battle, the soldiers back off. Therefore, isolating him. And in the end, killing Uriah. David receives the word of Uriah's death. And then eventually takes Bathsheba as his wife. And there is so much more to that story. But 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, the very end of that verse says, but the, king, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then we transition to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and understanding the whole progress of all of this that David had done. This isn't like, you know, when we read scripture, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get caught thinking scripture is one of those things that it happens in the moments you're reading. But this is one of those sins and things that it was taking probably several months that all of this was taking place. And yet David was in this place of hiding, figuring out, conniving, how do I cover my tracks? And if you've studied scripture, this is just as disheartening in some ways as some, because David was said to be the man after God's own heart. And you go, good grief, how can that be someone God's anointed and then this take place? 2 Samuel 12, David has not come to the place of confession that we're told. And so God sends the prophet named Nathan to confront him directly. It's a great chapter uh, just of how God brings forward uh, and makes David aware of his sin, which we all understand. He was fully aware. And after Nathan explains David's sin, David realizes the price he will pay, and he is broken. And then in 2 Samuel 12, 13, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And so that brings us to Psalm 51, which is now David's response after being confronted with this sin. So I invite you to grab your Bible and we're going to pick up Psalm 51 and read the chapter together. If you're looking in your Bible, by the way, there's a heading at the top and uh, I'm told that this heading is written even in the original writing. So I will read that portion before verse 1. And the Word of God says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord. 
Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. God, we come before you with your word and, Lord, such a, a weighty subject, but yet the incredible joy of recognizing that there's forgiveness. Father, I pray in this time that you would make your word real to us, that God, you would speak wisdom to the secret parts of our own lives. God, give us an openness to receive truth in your word. Search us, O oh God, know us. Father, I pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, Father, that you would use it. Oh God, we need this word today. And so, Father, we ask you to speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this psalm reads with such an incredible contrast to the story you read in 2 Samuel. Because as you're going through 2 Samuel and you hear of the subject matter, your heart is just gripped. Or at least I hope it is that you're, you're gripped and you're going, this, such a tragedy. That we have not only the act of adultery, but we have it going to such a level of covering and lying that a life of a great and godly person would even be taken. But yet, such a comfort as we come to Psalm 51. But forgive me, and before we get to the joy that comes out of Psalm 51, we need to understand a bit of the weight that comes when we talk about this word sin. And we understand these things because I, I, I fear, even, even in prepping this week and studying this passage, that this is something we just, we're so used to and we look at the world around us and it's, it's almost something we're just completely desensitized to. And it's like we've lost the ability to be shocked in some of this. And so it brings us to the place of even asking the question, why bother? Why should I even care about offending God. Why? Why? Because we look at our, you look at the daily news, social posts, videos that will come across, even just social media feeds, things that come through, and it works on our brains and our minds, not to even mention the thoughts that are running through our brains at times, and all of that, it seems like the war and the fighting, and at some, at some point, I fear that we step back and we just go, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And we become this desensitized people, but hear me, being desensitized, if not guarded carefully, will lead its natural way to a place where whether you're willing or not, when you go to that place, it will often just lead to a blank acceptance. And as a people of God, that's not a place we can go. For instance, one quote, a celebrity, I don't want to give them the name fame of this, but a quote I want you to read, just of kind of putting this around. They said, this about their work and their um, just affairs of life. They said this, I felt I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. 
I was unfaithful. I had affairs. I cheated. This feeling of, hey, I've arrived. This acceptance of sin and recognizing even, hey, I know this isn't right. Even outside of a godly parameter. But yet, I had worked and earned and life was so hard that I got to the place that I deserved to not have to fight against my temptations again. Sin is so much more than just the thing we do that is against God. And yet, that should be enough. But sin affects and flows into most every single area of our lives. Listen, just think real quick. Just in, and this morning, I'm, I'm going to be delicate with my wording, but just for the sake of the story we're working with and all, I'm going to stay in the parameter, parameters of sensuality in some ways. But listen to just thinking about the sin of adultery and uh, sexuality right there. Listen to this. How, where does it affect? It affects our relationships with others. It affects our jobs. It, ex- it definitely affects our personal thoughts, our desires. It affects our worship. It's kind of hard to sing praise to the Lord and pray when there's a burden of guilt and that's unconfessed sin. And it definitely, above all these things, it affects our relationship with God. And so when we come to Psalm 51, in verses 1 through 6, the very first thing we, we realize and we see here is the reality of sin. And, and as I go through this passage, there's so much meat in this passage and there's just not enough time. And so a little bit of picking and choosing here uh, as, as we go through this time. But I want to highlight to you the reality of sin. The reality of sin. The very first response upon realizing the full weight of his sin. Look at verse 1 again right there in your Bible. The f- very first response. And, and imagine, kind of put yourself, if you will, just for a second in this situation. David has probably been pushing off. You know, if... if as humans, because we all have dealt with sin or are dealing with sin, and there's this burden that it just rests on us, and there's this constant, how do I push it to the side? How do I not deal with it? How, how do I create a distraction that somehow appeases my brain and says, this is okay? And certainly over this span of time, I, I'm going to make a little assumption, so throw this on me if I'm incorrect here. But that David has been working in this regard, that God would have to send a prophet in order to confront him in this manner. That there's been something where he's been hardened, putting it off. But I think we all can agree here real quick. There's no doubt he was very understanding of what he did. And we're not talking just the adultery, but all the way to the covering, even to the way of murder. And yet we can resonate real quick. How far have we gone in our lives at different times and seasons to cover sin? Unfortunately, there's not one of us that has the privilege to sit here innocent of that. And so David, thinking through to that part, we read verse 1. And you'll notice at the end of verse 1, I believe there's an exclamation point. And there's got to be just this sense of relief and weight that comes off when he says, Have mercy on me, O God. When the weight and realization of the weight of sin arrests your attention, you will quickly come to this place and find that, oh my goodness, what have I done? And in understanding of who God is, it comes to this cry of, Lord, have mercy on me. God is that righteous judge that will hold us all accountable, but not that it is his mercy and love 
that we see lived out through this psalm. And so David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your love and your abundant mercy. Then he goes on and he says, blot out my transgressions. Great terminology right here, just to understand a little bit of the wording here. Blot out, it's a term that comes from where writers would write on the papyrus and so forth. And if they've made an error, I guess you could call it Old Testament whiteout, all right? And essentially, if they had made an error, they would blot out the ink in order to remove it with the purpose that they could go back and then rewrite according to what had been done. And so this wording is David saying, recognizing his transgressions are both recorded before God and in his own conscience. And he's saying, God, blot out my transgressions, erase, take them away, somehow get this out. That the right story of righteousness would be written. And David speaks directly to the ways that he was wrong. This is so important right here. When we're dealing with sin, and maybe here today you're sitting here and you're trying to, man, you're like, dude, of all things you could not have preached on today, you're on it. But hang with me. When we're dealing with sin and, and the confrontation of it, one of the things that we're going to see here is how the wording here amplifies the seriousness of David's actions and the acceptance of it. Three different words show up in verses 1 and 2. First one, transgressions. Second one, iniquity. And third, sin. Transgression is are a rebellion or stepping over God's boundaries. Iniquities are the moral uncleanness or the idea that I'm wrong and there is something inside me that is unclean. Sin is this idea of falling short of God's standard. You may have heard the illustration of the archery terminology of sin means, you know, hey, the arrow missed the bullseye. And actually, it's one step even beyond that. Sin means to fall short, which means the arrow never even got to the target. It fell short and hit the ground. It's not even on the paper. And so the recognition of David stepping in here, he's using three terms to point his complete guilt and admission of sin and his responsibility. We're going to get to a word here in a few minutes that's going to be familiar to many called repentance. But the journey to repentance must come where we accept full responsibility of our sin. There's not a true repentance until there is a true acceptance of the wrong that has been done. Let me say that one more time. You can't get to true repentance until you come to the place of truly recognizing the sin, the transgression, and the iniquity that's been done. And how many times do we lie to ourselves in order to justify our sin and over time build this case internally and rationalizing our sin? Have you ever found yourself there? You've been sexually tempted, whether it's on video or in person, and yet there's this justification that goes through the brain of why that's okay. If there's habitual viewing that's grown into your life, there's this sense and knowledge of, Going, finding each way, isn't it amazing how the enemy and sin in our own life finds its way to justify going, it's okay this time because, and it seems to be a new reason every time, yet it's loaded with sin and guilt on the other end. Yet it must be, people, that we come to this place of accepting full responsibility. And one of the ways even 
We prove our own guilt at times as the quickness to point to everyone else's fault and avoid our responsibility. We want to remove this burden of guilt and judgment of people around us, but you got to know that before God, there is a responsibility. And so in verse 3, David says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. As being a dad, one of the interesting things is my, uh, my kids are we're growing older and in their younger years, is, if you're a parent, you've experienced this, is you've caught your kid in whether it was a lie or they did something wrong. And they come to the place of confrontation and you go, why did you do whatever? And they go, I didn't do it. It was, you know, and they start the whole rabbit trail of conversation and point and deflection and all this stuff. And over time, you as a parent, you, it's so easy. You're already like, yeah, you did. I see it on your face. And, and then there's this building like of pressure. You see it in your kid's face and in their eyes of, I got to find a way out. And it's like they're about to burst and they're getting, you know, the anxiety is building. And you're like, they're just like, Please, God, send a miracle that someone else would take the blame. And, and yet there's this burst. And finally they get to the end and they're like, all right, I did it. And it's just like this burst. And they break it like, all right, I did it. And then what happens? After they do, it's like this instant relief just comes all over them of just this, somehow that felt better. Like, I'm guilty, but that felt better. And David here is very much in that place of saying, God, I know my transgressions and my sins, and they are before me. Just as even that child knows their sins, even before the Lord convicts us sometimes, we know that. You know, admission of guilt and sin, followed by restoration and the discipline, is what leads to a right relationship with our children, and thus, so it does with the Lord. Verse 4 brings us to what could be a troubling verse for some in light of the circumstances of 2 Samuel 11. When David prays, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And when we look at the account of, of adultery and murder in 2 Samuel 11, we look at objectively, we recognize that David's sin encompassed, listen to this list, just of his sin. He, it encompassed Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, their family, so two separate families right there, his own family, his kingdom, and even himself, if you read 2 Corinthians 6. All of those people sinned against, though, when recognized before God, those things faded into the background for the moment of realizing his sin before Almighty God. It's a bit hard to grasp because we live in so much with our eyes and we, we we look at people faces emotions and and don't hear me taking away from sin committed against humanity but yet elevating who god is and what it is to be righteous in our deeds before him confession of sin is ultimately before the lord and seeking forgiveness is with the people that you have wronged listen to this Charles Spurgeon quote, he said, David felt that his sin was committed in all its filthiness while Jehovah himself looked on. None but a child of God cares for the eye of God. Maybe you wonder, well, good grief, where did even my sin come from? We keep going here, we see in verse 5. 
He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, this whole thought of original sin, it wasn't that David's mother sinned in conceiving him, but in recognizing we are born with this sin nature. It's this thought of original sin. And the first time I, I heard this concept again, I was like, well, good grief, why try? If, if my default nature is that, but yet the greatest reward we got to realize is that there was a way out and there is a way to come that is in Christ Jesus. And understanding the power that raised Christ from the dead and accomplished salvation for all who would believe is the great defeater of any sin nature that exists within you. Somebody, that's a good place for an amen, by the way. Don't go to sleep on me. Perfection will not be accomplished this side of eternity, but a life of worship and purpose and contentment in Christ that is constantly transforming our nature is a reality. Your sin is not as good as it gets. You do not have to settle and go, well, I just can't overcome. You, Pastor Charlie, you don't understand how many decades back this sin lives in my life. And I may not. I don't know, maybe I do. But the reality is there is a God so much greater that in a moment we're going to get to see the beauty of forgiveness when we understand the weight of sin that says I can overcome anything that, whether it's decades, moments, there's a cost that's been paid. And so we see the joy of forgiveness in verse 7 through 12. And hopefully right now the, the weight of sin is beginning to kind of grasp you for a moment. Because we've got to understand that weight in order to experience the joy. In order to experience it, there must first be this repentance on our part. And I want to give you the meaning of repentance. And then I want to show you where it shows up here in the scripture in a moment. This word repentance, though, it means to express sincere remorse uh, for sins committed and to turn away from them. Now, many of you have probably heard of this term repentance. And repentance is, it means to turn away from, or the word repent means to turn away from and to turn towards something else. Biblical repentance means to turn away from sin and to turn toward God. But there's one more step that often we miss. Yes, it means to turn away from my sin and it means I place my faith and hope in Christ. But here's what repentance does. True repentance then begins to pursue towards that goal of God. And here's what that means. That means upon the turning, there's no distance created from the sin. And some of us get stuck in just this place of going, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. But biblical repentance then begins to step towards Christ and replacing the time that was spent in sin to spending the time that was in building righteousness going towards the Lord. Does that make sense? I'm looking in the room for head nods. Okay, good, we'll keep going then. But that's important to understand because so many just stop and they turn. The only difference is we haven't created any distance from sin, which means so often we wonder, well, why did I just end up back in it not long after? Because there was nothing created to replace the time that was built in sin. There must be that replacement. We all so need this repentance. And so look at verse 7 and a unique spot here for us in the scripture, but David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. 
Hyssop was this leafy plant that was used to sprinkle the blood of the Passover lamb over the doorposts in the book of Exodus. When the angel of death was coming, those that had the lamb's blood over their doorposts were passed over. And it was also in the Old Testament, hyssop was used by the priest to sprinkle the purifying water over those who confessed their sin. Stay with the imagery for a second. David is calling on God to be his priest and purify him at the same time. And he realizes that he cannot pure himself, purify himself and that only God can clean him and make him whiter than snow. You'll see that wording there in the passage. It's this recognition that, God, the work I'm asking you to do is more than anything I can do. This is where the work of the cross of Christ comes flying into our rescue. It's the incredible weight of our sin before the perfect, righteous God who is only worthy of one thing. And our sin is worthy of one thing, and that's our death. Oh, good grief, is that a hard concept to grasp? That the sin before God is worth our life. And yet, it's not that God is sick and wants his creation to perish, but death is the only sacrifice that makes right such an offense before a holy God. And so Jesus stepped in our place as this perfect, spotless son of God to come, live, die as our sacrifice. But hang on, because you, you probably are going, yeah, I know this story, Pastor. No, hang on here. But it was in his resurrection he accomplished not only our sacrifice on the cross, but he overcame the grave for all that would repent and surrender their life to him. Here's what that means. You don't need to die. That means because he defeated the grave, he rose from the dead, that your sin price was paid on the cross, but because he defeated the grave and rose, there was no need for another sacrifice. That's another good place for an amen, by the way. Man, if we get desensitized of missing the remarkable work of the cross and the resurrection, then, ladies and gentlemen, may God prick our hearts to never lose such a passion. And so we come and he says, I'll blot out their transgressions. And then in verse 10, he goes beyond that and he says, God created me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. He's saying, God, don't just clean me, don't just shine up. Take out the old, create in me, start a new one. Start something new, fresh. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 26. Our students should be real familiar with this. He says, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We get caught being fearful of repentance and going before God with our sins because we see him as judge who's going to punish and do us harm. And that's not a wrong view because that's who God ultimately must be. But if you study scripture close enough and even read this passage a couple times, you're going to discover the very character of God actually draws near in our sin and in our trouble. Because the character of God is what sent his son to the cross. The character of God's loving and love and mercy is what forbades his judgment. Otherwise, if that God's character was just in judging, it wouldn't be the opportunities of continual mercy and grace. It would be that, ah, man, I'm just sitting tired of you. Death. 
oh, that we would grasp and see that a loving God waits for our confession and repentance. He waits to embrace his character, as even scripture says, it's gentle, it's humble, and he desires to make us clean. Oh, see today this love and mercy and the willingness of God to save you from this depraved nature. And even maybe if you're wrestling sin right now, he desires to save you today and to bring you to the place of healing. Listen more, the joys of forgiveness that come. If salvation and a new heart aren't enough, listen to verses 11 and 12 here real quick. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This reflects back into 1 Samuel, even where he's asking as Saul, who had God's spirit ripped from him because he didn't honor him. We'll speak of it in a moment. But David is saying, God, don't take your spirit from me, please. Please don't turn me loose to my sin. One of the most fearful things I can think of is for God to turn his back and just say, you are free to sin. I will no longer stop you. He says, don't do that. He says, give me the joy of salvation. Uphold me with your willing spirit. Quick list. I've got to move quickly, but I want you to see the joys of forgiveness right here. The joys of forgiveness that this passage in verses 7 through 12 give us. Promises us to make us spiritually clean and pure as snow. Able to hear joy and gladness. Remove our iniquities. Give us a new heart. Renew us with a right spirit. Give us the ability to once again be in the presence of God. Given Holy Spirit within us to comfort and to guide. A joy of salvation. A willing spirit for the journey that's ahead. Now you look at that list just for a second. And you may think, Pastor Charlie, there's some other things that could give me a lot of joy. I could use some more money. My car is not so hot. And, uh, you know, there's just some things I see that could go a lot further. But I want to challenge that thought for just a half second. Could they really? Because most of the world I watch is driving for all of these things to fill a void and a discontentment that their sin has bred within them. And they're craving a joy of salvation. They're craving, oh, if I had a guide that would just comfort me in my time of worry. Oh, that there would be a renewedness. Oh, that the actions that I would do would not come with guilt. That there would be guilt-free actions that are taking place. And so as a result of confession, repentance, in verses 13 through 19 here, and we see David is kind of progressing through this forgiveness. We see our application as we're restored to worship the Lord. And look at verse 13. And he says, Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. And the first one is this. It, there's, a, there's an overflow to share the gospel. You go, good grief, how did we get from confession to share the gospel? Because the natural application, when you've had such a weight lifted, and the miraculous work of Christ has taken place. The overflow of joy is that you can't help but talk of it. Again, going back to a parenting analogy for two seconds. When your children were born, it provoked a joy in you that you didn't even know existed when you first saw that infant. If you're like me, you went, well, that 
It's not the head I was thinking, you know, it looked a little funny. But other than that, you're still, you're going, what a joy. This is my child. What a happiness. And it's that kind of weight and expression of joy. And the, yet the reaction of confessed sin and a repentant life should lead to the sharing of the gospel. And it's so hard for some, but if we were to sit here and rank our sins just for a moment, dare I say that David's sin would probably be one of the chief in the room. He'd probably rank up there as among the top in the, in the room. And yet we find a God that says, I will forgive you. Now, please don't hear from this message that with sin being forgiven, consequences are removed. You read further of David's story, there were many consequences, and some that he followed him all the way to his grave. As one pastor says, choose to sin, choose to suffer. There are consequences, but oh, the repentance and the grace of God that walks with us. And yet, with that, who can help but speak of such a life change to feel that weight and burden lifted? And the beauty of sharing the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is not that you have to know certain words, but that you understand the redeeming work of Christ in your own life and can express that out. That's why there's no qualification to sharing the gospel that says, well, you've got to pass certain classes and have certain theological terms down. No, if you are able to enunciate the work of Christ that's done and understand how the work of repentance changed you, then that story is free and clear to be delivered in sharing the gospel. And I would exhort you even today to do much of that. Last part of verse 14 and 15, we see singing show up and singing the gospel. He says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. When such a burden is lifted, the natural desire is to sing. You ever notice when you're joyful, you're feeling good, or the temperature's right outside, it's your time of year or time of day. Man, there's something about hitting the right kind of music, the window down, and all of a sudden you're in another place probably 20 years ago, right? You laughed because you just went there, didn't you? It was a good place, wasn't it? But yet, such a response and such a redemption promotes us to sing. That's why we encourage you to sing loud, church family. Bless the people beside you with whatever vocal tone God gave you. But it's not about them. It's about glorifying and lifting high the Lord and praising his name. So a natural outcome should be singing the gospel. And finally, the last one in verses 16 and 17 would be to sacrifice for the gospel. There's something built within us that wants to make things right when there is a transgression but to do so at the lowest possible cost. Track with me for a minute. David had very possibly, in the time leading up to this confrontation, made many sacrifices in the months that he was laboring under the weight of his sin. He was one that sponsored and encouraged people to go to the temple to be cleansed. They would place their hand on animals and sacrifice that in place of their sin at that time. And those sacrifices were of no account if they did not, listen very closely, if they did not come from one that had a broken spirit.